Hello there, Peter Mansbridge here with the latest episode of The Bridge. You're just moments away from smoke, mirrors, and the truth. It's Wednesday. That means Bruce Anderson. All right. Now, you know what? We haven't touched on this for the last couple of weeks. Peter Mansbridge here in Stratford, Ontario. Bruce Anderson is in Ottawa after a couple of weeks in Nova Scotia. You know, what I little I know about farming is farmers don't go away in the middle of the summer when the crops need tending. <laughs> but they, when, you know, the serious farming is going on. And I noticed you were on a beach in Nova Scotia, and I don't know what was happening with the radishes, but clearly the radish farmer wasn't near them. So how do you explain that one? Well, Peter, thank you for asking. First of all, I, I'm not embarrassed at all uh, by the question. The, you know, the intensity of our farming operations in the pre-farming season <laughs> was really impressive because, of course, we were basically using pandemic time. We needed things to get out of the house with, so we planted stuff, and then there were two or three frosts. But we put a lot of front-end time and human energy into the garden the farm and uh and it paid off with uh, early crops and some crops didn't do so well but of course by the middle of the farming season uh, my wife and i were pretty anxious to get outside of our little 10 kilometer radius that we lived in for a year and a half so we split for the east coast and it's been really clear we'll go back to the farm and we'll check on everything and we'll send pictures and harvest um, but you know, it just had so to the be bottom line is the bottom line is you have no idea what's happening on your farm. It's For all you organic. know, the, 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 the it, place has been overrun, infested with whatever bugs. Happen well, to it's radishes. organic. That's the way I think about it is what's happening there is purely organic right now. And I'll go back and have a look at it this weekend. And then bring the crop duster out. You'll be flying in over that coming a couple of feet off the ground. Now we're going to stay full on natural. Yeah, that's the way we're going to do it. And it was very clarifying to have that fresh, salty ocean air in my lungs and to look at all the great farming in Atlantic Canada and see how people are doing things there at the Annapolis Valley and then over on the South Shore. It's that's, been uh, it's been a great couple of weeks. I'm glad to be back. Beautiful part of I the went. country. Beautiful part of the country. Annapolis Valley, man, it's hard to beat that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I guess we better talk business. Um, mm. We're in that kind of middle of the campaign, right? Um, I don't know. There's uh, like three weeks to go. We've been through a couple of two and a half weeks. So, it, you know, we're sort of at the halfway point. And I'm, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I like to lecture about polls and how not to get carried away by them. But I look at them every day. I know you look at them every day. And quite frankly, I, I don't know what to think after having looked at them last little while. I know that no big event has happened yet in the campaign. Might be tomorrow with that TVR debate in Quebec, and Quebec is critical for you know for all the parties in terms of uh, of what may happen on election night. Um, but nevertheless, the the numbers really seem to jump around. A month ago, the Liberals had a, you know a significant lead in most polls you looked at. As soon as the election was called, it tightened up, and it's it's been tight, but it sort of bounces around, like up and down, like the proverbial, well, there's a saying. 
about what goes up and down a lot. And uh, and they do. My polls do. Like, you know, I know I've asked you before, you know, what we should think about all that and what, what plays into the equation right now. So give me your, uh, give me your answer for this point. Well, I'm glad, Peter, I'm so glad that you you said, you know, you're reluctant to lecture about (laughs) polls or criticize polls because. Oh, no, no, no. I didn't say I'm reluctant to do it because I do it all the time. That doesn't stop me. Well, I know you do. And I was just thinking back to when I said what I said last week with Chantal about journalism and, you know, how (laughs) I didn't really want to disrespect journalism. But and then I didn't even really have a chance to finish the sentence before she she clobbered me correctly for implying that all journalism was the same and that kind of, you know, drive by giving you guys ownership of the, of the problems that might exist in uh, journalism today. So I really enjoyed that conversation with her, by the way. And I, and, uh, and we've talked about it since, but you know, Peter, to your question about polls, uh, I look at them as somebody who, sees polling data every day and has for f- most of my 40 years in the business. And so I see movement all the time and I'm used to seeing movement that's within the margin of error and understanding that it might mean something, but you need to see two or three more pieces of evidence in the same direction before you know whether or not it is. So uh, I always find it frustrating when, um, in an election context, people pay a lot more attention to polls and the coverage of the election reflects whatever uh, new or more interesting slash shocking uh, piece of evidence in polling data emerges. And so a couple of days ago, there was a poll that said a, a massive conservative lead. And I was looking at our data and I was looking at Nano's data and I was looking at a couple of others and they were all sort of showing the same thing, which is it's kind of a tie right now. Um, just as almost all of them were showing about a five to 10 point lead for the liberals a month ago. Um, and so when we first talked about this in the run up to this election, I'd said to you, I think people who want to make sense of this should look at the range of polls and decide that the consensus of the numbers is probably where the truth lies because no individual company really knows. I know one of our, our friends and one of my friendly competitors loves to get on the Twitter machine late at night and and talk about how sure he is about the way that things are going to go. And he's a good guy and he's very accurate, very professional, very knowledgeable guy, but nobody can predict this election in my humble opinion. Certainly not me. And right now I, I just see uh, us being almost at the starting gate. And I know people probably get frustrated who are listeners of this podcast and who pay a lot of attention to politics saying, well, Bruce, how can you say that we're just at the starting gate? Because we've been showering in uh, information about the campaign since it started. And I'm looking at people who are finishing that last week of summer, uh, looking forward to that last long weekend of summer. And to me, that's, that's the point at which people are really going to start paying attention here. You know, when I, I, I'll just ask one more question on the, on the numbers, uh, because I agree with you, you know, I think it, you know, as Chantel said, you know, three weeks ago, the campaign won't really start until Labor Day. And that's, you know, we're just yes. a couple of days away from that. Uh, there'll be the followed from whatever happens in the Quebec debate tomorrow. 
uh, and then we're into Labor Day, and then bingo, the race is really on the stretch drive the final two weeks, and the English language debates next week, and another French language debate next week. But just on the, before we close out on polls, the thing I have to keep reminding myself that impacts the numbers is, you know, the Liberals traditionally have a healthy lead in, in Atlantic Canada. And that seems to be the case, even though there was that surprise in the provincial election, uh, you know, last week of the Conservatives winning uh, in Nova Scotia. Um, but they have a healthy lead, and it does have a, an impact as, as uh, when you, you know, total their numbers up. But the the Conservatives have a huge lead. Like it's a mad, it's like a 50-point lead on the prairies, mainly built up in Alberta and Saskatchewan, but it, it's, you know, I think it's the three prairie provinces that, uh, you know, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, that those numbers are based on. And that has a huge impact on, the, obviously, their national total. And when you factor those couple of things in, it, you know, you have to keep remembering that because it it impacts the final numbers, as we saw in the in the 2019 election campaign, we you know we tend to forget at times that the Conservatives actually won that election if you only count votes, and they won it by a couple of points, and part of that was based on their huge lead in the uh, in the prairies. Um, yeah. so yeah, I keep kind of keep trying to keep that in mind. Well, it's really good that you you raise this, Peter, because um, <clears throat> pardon me. In the U.S. presidential election, everybody's comfortable accepting that there's six to eight states that really matter uh, because the outcomes there could go one way, could go the other way, and ultimately are the states, because they're swing states, that will decide who sits in the in the Oval Office after a presidential election. Here, we, we seem culturally uncomfortable saying BC, Quebec, and Ontario are going to decide the outcome of the election. Um, and of course, those are three provinces, so it's a bigger proportion of our country. It's not quite analogous, but it's similar in the, in the, in the sense that if you're a party strategist and you're planning a tour, you're going to send your candidate everywhere, but you're going to make sure that they spend more time in BC and Quebec and Ontario because that's where the seats are at play. Maybe for the NDP this time, less time in Quebec um, than back when they won all those seats under uh, under Jack Layton. Maybe for the Conservatives as well, less time in Quebec, more time in BC and more time in Ontario. But that really speaks to the fact that the parties know that that's where um, change could happen. Change for the worse if you're liberals and you're hoping to be reelected. Change for the better if you're the conservatives, you're hoping to defeat them or for the NDP looking to grow their caucus. And underneath the surface of the tie that most polls seem to be pointing towards, and I say tie, and I know, you know, some might write and say, well, it's not a tie in every poll, Bruce. Some have the conservatives two, three points ahead. Some have um, them dead even. For me, that's all kind of a tie right now. But the conservative number can go up, and if it only goes nationally, but if it only goes up because the prairie numbers and the Atlantic numbers for them are going up a little bit, it might not give them any more seats. 
because they'll still be too far behind in Atlantic Canada to convert that increase into seats, and because they'll get almost all of the seats in the provinces where, uh, in the prairies where they're already very strong. Now, I'm not saying that that's where that's happening uh, or exactly what's happening now, but I'm saying that's kind of what I'm watching because I think if you're the Liberals, you're going to be looking at that Ontario number first and then the Quebec uh, gap to the block. And if you've got a five to 10 point lead in Ontario and you're even or a little bit better than even with the block, you think you're going to win. You don't know how much you're going to win by um, minority probably. Um, but those are the those are the key things to look for in the regionals. Those three provinces, and then BC. If you're going to, you know, if they're in the position you just talked about a, a second ago, then BC becomes critical as to what kind of government it could be. Absolutely, more critical uh, maybe than 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 ever. With each passing election, it looks like a three way race and unpredictable to the end. It might be the the thing at the end of the election night that decides the outcome. Um, okay, now I want to talk about something we, uh, at least on this uh, program, we haven't talked about much in the last few weeks, and that's the pandemic. I'm sure it's talked about every day in most households in Canada, in one form or another. It must come up in the topic of conversation, and including, you know, when when the topic is centered around the election, somehow the pandemic squeezes in there. So I wanted to see where we are on that in terms of a uh, you know a, a campaign issue i see today is the day that uh quebec's vaccine passport goes into effect and that's you know that's an issue that uh, everybody's facing ontario is said to be about to do the same thing after uh, weeks of saying they wouldn't um and you know other parts of the country already have uh, but overall, in terms of the pandemic, numbers have been rising because of, uh, you know, the Delta variant and people are extremely worried about school, which has already started in some parts of the country. It will be fully underway next week in, in other parts of the country. So that's going to be on the minds of a lot of parents. You know, and I, I've had, I don't know about you, but I've had a lot of parents tell me in the last few days how, you know, Hence, they are about the pandemic because of school and how in a way they're they're no longer jealous of their neighbors and friends who've been off on holidays like you have been like i have been those who don't have small children but they're kind of like it's more than jealousy they're kind of mad about it um and that unhappiness and degree of tension um how that is all going to factor into the play in the next uh, the next couple of weeks? What are you What are you seeing on that? I think it's um, a factor in this election, unlike anything that I've ever seen before. We haven't had an election in my lifetime that had this big, a unique kind of issue sitting in the middle of it, surrounding it, basically, and so. Uh, I think it's hard to know which way it's going to go, but here's a couple of things that I'm thinking about. One is that almost everybody really, really, really psychologically and otherwise wants the pandemic to be over. We would rather not be thinking about it. We would rather believe that we've been vaccinated. We're able to go back into society, wearing a mask, go to restaurants, that kind of thing. And life is not normal, but it's not, 
as different from normal as it has been for a long time. And just that collective stress and the desire to be out of it is a factor that probably has helped make um, more opportunity for other parties than for the Liberals, right? In other words, if people are thinking, you know what, I might think they did the Liberals did an okay job during the pandemic, but I don't want to think about the pandemic anymore. I'm done thinking about the pandemic. Um, so why don't I think about what about Justin Trudeau annoys me? Or do I trust the Conservatives on health policy? Or I like the way Jagmeet Singh comes across on issues of diversity um, and social justice. So all of those other ways of thinking about the electoral choice become more prominent and real when people think less about the pandemic. I think that's a thing. I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that that has been part of what's been going on in the last couple of weeks. But I don't know how um, traumatizing the return to school will be for people. I don't know whether the case counts are going to continue to rise to levels where we're seeing more mask mandates. We're seeing a tougher conversation around vaccinations. It feels like that's where we're going. Um, And if we're going into a world where there are more cases, but not more hospitalizations, not more deaths, What's the effect of that psychologically? Will people say, well, you know, the vaccines are working and enough of us are vaccinated and so we don't really need to think about it? Or will they say, no, we really, really, really have to stamp this thing out before another variant comes our way and wrecks the progress that we've made? Um, And that's why I actually think that the vaccination conversation, which has, in my mind, at least been the most heated part of this election so far, might become the thing that ultimately makes people go, you know what, we're not done this thing yet. And if we want to be done it, we have to stare it in the eye and we have to, uh, we have to support policies that we think are going to do the best job of it. Now, right now, anyway, when we ask the question, which party has the best approach on vaccinations, the liberals on that have a 20 point lead over the conservatives. So I'm not saying I think they want that to be the question. I'm saying they think that it might be a conversation that needs to happen. And if it is the conversation for a lot of voters, it tends to be one that, that, that works to their, uh, to their political favor, I guess, in terms of those voters who say, if I'm worried about this and I really think we have to finish the job on vaccination, then I at least know that these guys are in line with my desire about let's get everybody vaccinated. Um, So I, I, you know, I don't know how the pandemic is going to play out, obviously, as I said, and I don't want to overstate, I think the importance of the vaccination question, but it's hard for me to have looked at the last week and not wonder if that's going to be a more important political factor going forward. Especially if the numbers keep going up. Um, And you pointed you know, the, the best case scenario, if the numbers keep going up, that hospitalizations stay down, deaths stay down. But if if they don't, um, that's all. If they don't, and also the question about children, I, I should have mentioned yeah. that, because I do think that for many people, it might be easy to say, I'm double vaxxed, I feel pretty safe, I wear a mask 
uh, in a lot of places. I don't think I'm going to get it. Or if I do, I don't think I'm going to get that sick because there's a heck of a lot of evidence that would support that thinking. But uh, with kids going back to school who can't be vaccinated yet, um, with this kind of active debate about should everybody that is, are around kids be vaccinated or not? Is that a choice? Is that a choice that we can kind of accept uh, if we're concerned about the health of kids? Um, I have to believe that there are a lot of young parents who see this pretty clearly as a question not of the choice of the unvaccinated or vaccine refuser, but in terms of the protection of the health of their child. Yeah, and that's what I was getting at with the kind of stories I've heard in the last little while. I heard one yesterday from one parent. He's got, uh, you know, two small kids, um, has had, you know, a, a relatively good summer, and they've been out a lot, you know, did the whole lake thing. Um, they spent a lot of time with their, um, you know, uh, cousins. And suddenly they're now confronted because they go to, these kids go to different schools. So it's a totally different situation. They're heading after this weekend into a situation where they are not going to see their cousins anymore. Because their cousins go to different schools, are mixed with different kids, different teachers, you know, all of that than they are. And so the, the odds of some kind of transmission within their group and then coming and mixing with their group and then, you know, with, with, with this parent's uh, kids and then those kids going to back to their school and taking it with, it's just a, you know, it never ends. And um, the whole lifestyle for, for those small kids, the under 12s and the parents who, you know, who look after them and, you know, usually in, in our world today, both, both parents have jobs. So their influence too, where they can go, what they can do. I mean, you know, <laughs> it'd be great to be young again, but then again, it we're pretty protected as older. Certainly, I am as a you know a, a really old guy as to where you know where I go and who I see and and what I do. But yeah. um, I don't know the uh, that situation. I think over these next this next week to ten days. It's already started for a lot of parents uh, across the country, but it will really start next week in, in you know, in, in Ontario and parts of uh, other uh, provinces in the country. It's going to have an impact. I think that's right. And I, I also think that video that we probably all saw the other day of that child being kind of standing in the line of spittle uh, and venom of the anti-vaxxer. Right. That's a pretty stark um, contrast because it's one thing if you've got somebody who hates Trudeau and is yelling invective at Trudeau and you've got liberal partisans on the other side saying, you know, go Trudeau, go liberal, that sort of thing. People can look at that and they won't like it and they'll find it ugly, but they'll find it a, a kind of an ugly thing that will pass and will not have harmful repercussions um, on our culture more generally. And I think that that image with the child in the line of fire um, and listening to those words being said and those, that, that level of anger um, 
if we're going to see more of it, it's going to have an effect on how people think. And they're not going to line up with the anti-vaxxers in my view. I said, you can't predict very many things from polls, but um, there's a lot of people vaccinated and they got vaccinated for a reason. You know, I, I, I see Trudeau was, um, made a statement last night, I think it was, um, that he's not going to shy away from, from confronting those groups. Uh, when when given the opportunity, when 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 his security lets him, I guess, mm. but uh, that he wants to take the argument to to the course. So you know, we'll see uh, we'll see how that plays out. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want I want to talk about another situation, uh, a, a very different kind of situation. It's the kind of things that uh, unexpected things that can go wrong in a campaign, and sometimes they're kind of funny, uh, but they they all have an impact. Um, we'll talk about that when we come back. This is The Bridge with Peter Mansbridge. All right, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. Peter Mansbridge here in Stratford, Ontario. Bruce Anderson is in Ottawa. We talked to... We talked a little bit about polls and smoke, I guess, and then tried to bring in some truths on on, on polls and, uh, and the way we can all uh, look at them these days. Um, we talked a bit about the pandemic. I want to talk about, well, there have been a couple of examples. So one of them, I think the most glaring one, was um, earlier this week, uh, Jagmeet Singh was, was campaigning in in a, you know, in a particular area, I'll just give the highlights of this. Um, and he was speaking to a, a, a group that seemed very, uh, you know, encouraged by what he had to say. And then he invited to the microphone uh, two indigenous leaders uh, from that area uh, to speak as well. And clearly, he wouldn't have done that unless he thought <laughs> these two people were going to say something nice about him um, or his potential for um, winning. But they came up and, you know, they, they just happened to drop the fact that they were both going to be voting for the Liberal in that riding. <laughs> and the look, you see this, I mean, the picture that I saw, I don't know whether it was taken right at that exact moment, but the, 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 there seems to be a, a look of some degree of shock on uh, Jagmeet Singh's face. And he's probably wondering, who exactly... <laughs> suggested this would be a good thing uh, to happen for me today. Um, but those are the kind of unexpected things that can happen they, that, you know, don't work out and certainly weren't planned, um, at least by the party uh, in the position to have that happen. Um, I mean, th- these things do happen, but it doesn't help. Yeah, it's not like losing luggage on a foreign tour, although that was, a, you know, when, even as I say that, Peter, I, I can't help but wonder how many listeners of this podcast will have any clue what it is that I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, Joe Clark in 1978. Eight. Yeah, it wasn't in the uh, campaign. It was. It was. Was establishing his credentials exactly. as a uh, potential future leader of the country and taking a trip in other parts of the world. And a bag went missing, and the reporters who were traveling with him, which in and of itself is a sentence you wouldn't hear said now. There would not be reporters traveling in that scenario now. 
they made a bit of a deal about it. And, and, you know, again, not to criticize journalism, but <laughs> probably they overstated how important it was as a, um, as a factor that should affect uh, Jill Clark's political career. But um, I digress. Your question about uh, Singh, I, I was interested in, I mean, obviously I, I feel for the staffers uh, who organized that event or the local officials who organized that event um, inside NDP headquarters, I think they would be um, feeling pretty good about the start that they've had to the campaign and the appeal that Jagmeet Singh has been able to affect uh, with most voters. But if they're looking at the, at the two screens, the what's going right screen and the what's not going quite right screen, what's not going quite right, I see three things that I'd be anxious about if I were them. Uh, one is uh, this whole question of pipelines um, and the fact that Jagmeet Singh, if I understand correctly from what I've read, has said that he wouldn't stop TMX uh, from being completed. And I think for a lot of those uh, voters who move from the Liberal Party over towards the NDP, the pipeline was an important part of that, especially in B.C., and so if he sounds like he's he was really against it, but now he's going to let it happen, I think that it, it might not turn those voters against him, but it might demotivate them somewhat. The second thing is that one of the most trenchant criticisms of uh, Justin Trudeau by the NDP has been the idea that they're all talk when it comes to Indigenous reconciliation and Indigenous relations. And so that event in addition to being a kind of an advanced failure, a failure of the advanced team to figure out exactly what's going to happen in that event, um, does put a hole in the argument that you can only trust the NDP to build strong relations with Indigenous communities. Um, and, and so I think that's an important, um, that was an important thing over and above the, uh, the bumpy campaign event aspect of it. And then the third thing and the last thing, and maybe the most important thing, is that uh, when Jagmeet Singh was asked the question about whether he could support a conservative government, uh, I think he implied that he could support either a liberal or a conservative government. Now, I think for a lot of progressive voters, one of the things that they like about the NDP and that they like about Jagmeet Singh is the idea that he's he gives no quarter. Uh, on the progressive ambition side, that he is the most fierce advocate for progressive ideas and therefore the most effective foil to conservative thinking. And uh, I don't know that those voters are indifferent to whether it's a liberal or conservative government. Actually, I should say I do know they're not indifferent. Three out of four NDP voters, if the choice came down to an O'Toole government or a Trudeau government, would want a Trudeau government. So I think he's going to have to be very careful if he wants to hold those disappointed with Trudeau progressive voters. He's going to have to be very careful about how he manages the next several days in this campaign because he's laid a few traps for himself in terms of the affection and the motivation levels for those voters. It is a tricky question to throw at him, though, because on the other hand, He's got to be careful not to just look like a, a lackey for the liberals, right? Yep. So, you know, 
I'm not sure what the right answer to the question is. Well, I think the right answer is you'll only support the progressive ideas that you're campaigning on. And stay away from names of parties. Yeah, I, I mean, I that. think you got to sort of, you got to say, in effect, that if a, if a conservative government ends up wanting to do progressive things, you're for the progressive things. Um, right. But um, I, I take your point. I don't think it's an easy question, but I think that appearing ambivalent to the outcome is different from saying I'm not ambivalent about the outcome. The outcome has to be progressive change for women, for people of color, for minorities, for the poor. Yeah. I, you know, I think the way to, I, 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 I take your point. I think that was the right, the, the, what, what you're suggesting would be the right answer. Uh, you know, I will support the progressive ideas that, uh, that me and my party have, have stood for throughout this campaign. And then the reporters will say, oh, that means you'd support the liberals. And he would respond by saying, that's not what I said. I said I'll support the progressive ideas yeah. Uh, yeah. that we've uh, campaigned on. And that's the end of my comment on it. Yeah, there's no blank check for anybody. That's the bottom line. And, and you know, vote for the progressive ideas and mark a ballot for us. That's, a, that's an entirely legitimate thing to say, even though it's the job, I suppose, of reporters to ask that question. Sometimes I wonder if it's the job of the reporters to ask the question 150 times in a row, because at some point you kind of go, well, you might be mad that he's not answering it the way that you want him to answer it but he's entitled to answer it the way he wants to answer it. And then the voters will decide again, not a shot at journalism. No, 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 no. I, I tend to agree with that. And we've had, you know, it's interesting because we, on the reporters section of, uh, uh, of the podcast, the, that issue has come up a couple of times from, from people who've written in and we've had a good discussion about it because there is, I mean, I totally agree with you at a certain point after you've asked it, asked, 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 asked it, you've got the answer you've got, you know, and people will judge by that. They'll either say he's ducking it or she's ducking it or, or fine. Okay. I, I hear what they're saying. Um, just before we leave it and, and wrap it up here, have you, um, have you seen any moments like that one with the candidates for Singh? Have you seen any moments uh, for either O'Toole or Trudeau that uh, weren't, you weren't exactly what they were hoping for. I guess you could say in some ways, in some ways you could call that Friday demonstration, although it seems to cut both ways uh, on Trudeau as that was unexpected. It played out uh, in a way that wasn't uh, <laughs> scripted in any back room. Um, but anyway, either that or, or uh, O'Toole. You know, I, I, actually think that the most for the most part um the liberal and the conservative campaigns have been um performing relatively well i I certainly think the conservative campaign looks like a different sort of conservative campaign than we've seen um and it's to their credit that they they didn't really telegraph that that much before the campaign started but what we're seeing now is a guy who's kind of energetic, who's positive, who, um, you know, isn't surrounded by the kind of voices and personalities that make people shy away from the conservative brand. 
Uh, we don't see Jason Kenny. We don't hear much from Doug Ford. Um, I think Pierre Polyev is trying to get into the picture on, on social media sometimes, but he doesn't seem to be a big part of the formal campaign. And I, I think a, a fair bit of the conservative uh, platform has been designed to take some of the sense of edge off uh, what people normally associate with conservative platform. Now, I think it's going to be the job of the liberals if they want to succeed in this election to underscore a few um, what I see as being political weaknesses or exposure points in the conservative platform. He would rip up those $10 a day childcare deals. That's what his target for climate change action for reducing emissions is essentially a policy to let the planet burn faster. Um, and I don't think that a lot of voters, if they if their attention is drawn to that, will feel very good about signing on for that. Um, there are others, but those are the two that are maybe the most prominent. And, and I guess the vaccination question, where does he really come down, is going to be something that we're going to see featured in the debate. I would assume that. So I think they've they've done well, but they've got some exposed flanks for the liberals. If there was a, uh, if they made a mistake, it was probably in designing a campaign that looked from the outset a little bit more about Trudeau than maybe was intended, certainly than would be ideal. I, I think that there's um, a risk with any incumbent that people after a certain period of time get tired of hearing them. Um, they want something different. They want to hear a different sound, a different voice, a different way of articulating the vision of the future. And I think the liberal default setting sometimes is, hey, we've got another giant idea with a giant price tag because we're really well-meaning, well-intentioned people. Remember that term virtue signaling that we heard yeah. uh, some years ago? I mean, there was a reason that that phrase caught on, is that it spoke a certain truth about how liberals can come across if they're not careful Um to remember that people don't in Canada anyway, we really value humility. Uh, we, we kind of consider it to be um, like the beaver. It's a, uh, it's core to who we are. Um, <laughs> I don't know why we love the beaver so much. It's hardworking and all that kind of thing. But anyway, um, I think that's been a challenge for the liberals. And I think the, the conservatives have had a pretty good campaign because they focused on O'Toole. The liberals have had, maybe not exactly the start they wanted because they focused a little heavily on Trudeau. Um, but on the other hand, it's hard to run an incumbent campaign without, uh, without the prime minister uh, being at the at front and center. Before we, um, before we wrap it up, give me 20 seconds or 30 seconds on the importance of that French language debate tomorrow night on TVA, the first of two French language debates but it is the first one. It's the first time we'll see at least four of these leaders um, on the same stage. Mm -hmm. um, tell me what uh, you think is the importance of that. I mean, uh, on the day after, on Friday, you'll be back with Chantel and Good Talk, and we'll obviously talk about what happened. And Chantel will give us that kind of perspective from the ground in Quebec. Um, but your take on, uh, you know, on the importance of, of what could happen tomorrow. Well, I think there's two issues uh, uh, to watch. One is the impact in Quebec, and the other is the echo effect of the debate in, in terms of how the parties and the leaders approach the English language debate to follow. Uh, in other words, if they, on the second point, 
if they come out of the Quebec debate feeling good about the way that they handled themselves and the likely impact on voters, um, that will make them feel more confident, less anxious going into the English language debate, for sure, that they're human beings. I've seen that up close. That's the way it works. In Quebec, I- I'm going to be watching for the um, the Blanchette-Rudeau dynamic. Um, I always think it's going to be hard for English-speaking leaders to really participate to the same level as those who are fluent in French, in the French language debates. And also the race between the Bloc and the Liberals in Quebec is the dynamic that will have the biggest impact on seats. No question in my mind about it. And Blanchette for me is not, um, he's not a rookie. He's not new. There's a strong Quebec uh, premier um, arguing on behalf of Quebec, who's actually developed a pretty good policy relationship anyway with Mr. Trudeau. So watching that dynamic and, and will Blanchette be as effective as he has been in the past at prosecuting um, the case against Justin Trudeau and for a block vote? I don't know. And how will uh, Trudeau do remains to be seen. But that's the thing I'll be watching for and how they do will then affect the psychology of those leaders coming into the English language debate. And if you're wondering who the fourth person is on the stage, it'll be Annamie Paul, the Green Party leader. Um, the People's Party leader will not be there because that party does not have any seats in the House of Commons. Um, Annamie Paul has been basically in Toronto for the whole campaign, trying to win her riding of Toronto Centre. And that's a challenge for her. And so are the numbers right now. Terrible numbers. These are the worst numbers I've seen for the Green Party since there was a Green Party, I think. Um, It's, you know, the People's Party is ahead of the Greens Party. Which the, the the last numbers I looked at, the People's Party was ahead of the Greens. Yeah, and it's certainly not because there are more people who believe in what the People's Party is offering than believe we need to fight climate change and protect the environment. There's never been an election where more people are preoccupied with environmental issues. And this is the, going to be, if the numbers hold, the worst outing for the Green Party in its history. Yeah, that's uh, ironic. Um, to say the least. Okay, we're going to wrap it up. We're back on back with you and Chantel on Friday. Tomorrow, it's your voice, the people's voice, the, all, all the, the mail that we've had on uh, uh, the Mansbridge podcast at gmail.com. So write again today if you, if you have something you want to say. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll dedicate tomorrow's program to you and what you're thinking, both in terms of the election and there there's a lot of mail on the Arctic as well. So I'm... Uh, glad to respond to some of that on air as well. Uh, thanks, Bruce. Yeah, I, I'll let you get back out there to uh, check the crops. The organics. The organics. Um, and uh, we'll talk again later in the week. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours. Mm-hmm.